Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 313. It's titled, There Are No Buy and Hold Investors. I got an email last week from a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. He has been listening to my show for over four years and loves it. He continued, I like the way you explain financial strategies and how you occasionally cover the more personal aspects of life as well as investing. This gentleman retired three years ago when he turned 56. He has $4 million in investable assets, half of which is in cash and bonds. He follows one of the adaptive model portfolios on the website and converted over 10% of his assets out of stocks in March based on the monthly investment conditions and strategy report we do on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. He wrote, to be honest, a decision I now heartily regret. He continued, I really like the sound logic of the analysis-based approach you promote to help decide how to dial up or down allocations to different asset classes. And I acknowledge your modifications have resulted in some investment success. That said, I've typically been a classic buy and hold investor riding out the dips. But this time in March, I followed the logic to reduce the allocation to stocks and wait for conditions to improve. We all know how that turned out. How did it turn out? We have had the fastest bear market recovery ever in the U.S. and around the world. His concern is that by the time investment conditions deteriorate or improve, is it already being reflected in market prices? Is there even a reason to make any adjustments to our asset mix? He continued, I also know this was a very unusually fast drop and recovery, but as I plan to stick around as a plus member and take some level of guidance from the investment conditions, it seems like a fair question to ask about what level of backtesting is available to see how this method works as an alternative to my old approach to just buy and hold. I also recognize your approach covers asset classes versus just stocks versus bonds and types of bonds, such as real estate, looks good or bad, high yield, looks good or bad, etc. Now, this monthly investment condition and strategy report has commentary and metrics to help individuals stick to their portfolio plan or perhaps to make adjustments as risk change. Focuses on valuations, economic trends, and investor sentiment. It relies on my over two decades of investment experience, but also draws on data provided by institutional investment and economic research services that we pay tens of thousands of dollars per year to access. Now, I'm not trying to sell you on Plus Membership in this episode, but to be frank, his email kind of bothered me a little bit. Not that he wrote it. I think these are absolutely fair questions and deserve a fair response. 
What bothered me was the challenges I've had in trying to explain what portfolio management is. This member feels regret for a decision he made, one decision, but portfolio management involves many, many decisions. I saw a tweet last week that also kind of bothered me, not because there was anything wrong with the tweet, but it raised the question, is it better to trade buying individual stocks or to use options? Her view was it's better to use options because they're less expensive. That might be true. Again, deciding to buy individual stocks with options, that's just one decision. Wealth is not built and preserved by buying individual options, following the latest hot stock tip, trading foreign exchange, or following the guidance of investment newsletters that sometimes have doomsday scare tactics. My background is in institutional portfolio management. I worked with major universities like Texas A&M University. I was their investment advisor for 13 years. They have over a billion dollars in assets. I've worked with other universities and private foundations. We often met with investment committees to tackle all the decisions involved in managing a portfolio. The same decisions that individuals have to make. In fact, individuals have to make even more decisions when it comes to managing an investment portfolio. What I have found is institutional investors and serious individual investors, they follow a disciplined portfolio approach. They focus on global multi-asset class portfolios. They rely on reasonable expected return and risk assumptions to make asset allocation decisions. Their focus is on achieving real net of inflation growth. They spend a lot of time discussing making adjustments as markets and economies evolve. Disciplined investors control their fees and taxes. And then with an institutional portfolio, an endowment, a foundation, a pension plan, you have all the group dynamics involved in making a group decision as a committee. Ultimately, no one knows what's going to happen. We make the best decisions we can under the circumstances. This member that wrote me provided some additional perspective. He wrote, for over 20 years, I've tried to do a bit of dynamic asset mix management myself, moving a bit to or from domestic or international emerging stocks or stocks versus bond. Your service is a great summary of market factors that lets one understand where asset classes stand so I can make those calls for myself. In March, what happened with me is that I was mad at myself for not selling sooner than I did, and I was planning to allocate even more to stocks with their big drawdown. I got a bit greedy and sold some, but not a lot, so I'd have even more cash to invest at the bottom. But then things shot up so fast I held off and jumping back in until May and June, but only in a partial way. For the year, I'm down a couple percent, which is not bad, and I've learned the lesson, which is part of the process of becoming an investor. It certainly is. We learn lessons all the time in investing. He continues, the whole craziness of the market helped me decide to put a small part of my portfolio into some annuities as a safer bet. I can say that trying to sort through all these different annuities with a couple of different brokers was the toughest intellectual challenge I faced as an investor. As a buy and hold investor, he needed to decide whether to add annuities to his portfolio. He was making a change, a portfolio change, a strategic portfolio change. 
When I say there are no buy and hold investors, what I mean is we all make changes at some point to our portfolio. We introduce a new asset class. We rebalance. We make myriad of other changes. With regards to backtesting my investment approach, I did do a backtest back in 2002. During that period, and I've mentioned this before, as an institutional investment advisor, we were researching numerous investment managers across many different asset classes, and I decided it would be a cool product to take the high-conviction top holdings of our stock managers that were on our recommended list and create a portfolio out of them. They're top names. I discussed this in my book. I back-tested it, about a 50 to 100 stock portfolio, and it didn't outperform the global stock index. It underperformed. That really bugged me because that's what we did. We recommended money managers in putting that portfolio together. I used Barra's portfolio optimization software and tightened the tracking air so the portfolio was very similar to the benchmark from a sector standpoint, from a size standpoint. And as a result, I had a portfolio that was fairly close to the benchmark, and I diluted many of the factors, such as a value tilt or a yield tilt, that had led to a particular manager's outperformance. So then I started backtesting just different factor exposures and adjusting those factor exposures over time, including the exposure to stocks versus bonds, to see if how that did. And that actually worked. My partner and I put up some money to start establishing a track record. And I, that's when I started managing assets in a dynamic fashion. We called it active asset allocation. There was only two to three changes per year. We started marketing that portfolio management service to clients about a year later. And I managed those portfolios for nine years until I left my firm. That initial seed portfolio grew to $2 billion in assets under management mostly from bringing in new clients. There was obviously some asset appreciation. And that's been my approach to investing, looking at investment conditions and making changes to allocate to areas that are most attractive and pull back from those that are least attractive. And I do an aspect of that with some of the model portfolios on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. They're there as examples because as investors, there are a lot of decisions we have to make. Let's review some of the decisions that we have to make as portfolio managers as we oversee our financial assets. The first is our approach to choosing an asset mix. We discussed this in episode 306. Do we want to use a role-based approach where we have asset classes that serve specific roles, such as an allocation to stocks for growth, treasury inflation protection securities and gold, that do better in more inflationary periods? Or do we want to use a strategic approach where we set a long-term target based on an optimization model? Or perhaps we use an asset garden approach where we just go for varieties and we don't seek to optimize it. We make sure we're comfortable with the level of stock-like investments, but then can add incrementally investments as we're experimenting or something seems attractive. Another decision we have to make is how much to put in stocks versus cash and bonds, the primary asset allocation choice. 
stock-like versus cash and bonds. Within bonds, fixed income, we have to decide what investment vehicle are we going to use? Are we going to go direct and buy individual bonds or indirect and use an exchange-traded fund, perhaps an open-end mutual fund, or a closed-end fund? Once we make that decision of investment vehicle or the type of investment vehicle, then we have to actually choose one. And in that choice, it's a question of how much interest rate risk do we want to take? Do we want our portfolio to be more volatile as interest rates change? Or do we want to reduce that interest rate sensitivity? Right now, if you buy the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, it has a yield of 1.16%. Not very much, but its duration is 6.6 years. So if interest rates go up by 1%, the price of that ETF will fall by 6.6%. Now, there are active mutual funds that have higher yields than the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, but have less interest rate sensitivity. Those are all decisions that have to be made with regard to a bond allocation. Do we allocate to Treasury Inflation Protection Securities? Right now, 10-year TIPS have a negative 1.1% yield, and 5-year TIPS negative 1.3% yield which means the expected return is the rate of inflation less 1%. Let's turn to stocks. Again, which investment vehicle? Individual stocks? Options on stocks? An exchange-traded fund? Mutual funds? How many? Then it's a question of, do we have a global portfolio? We just buy the overall global market? Or do we put more in our home country? We have to decide our factor tilts. Do we want to emphasize smaller company stocks or mid-cap stocks or large? What about growth versus value? That's been a huge driver of returns over the past decade. It's astounding when you see the difference. It was about a year ago I did an episode on value investing and growth has continued to outperform. Over the past year, global growth stocks So stocks that exhibit faster earnings growth, the MSCI Acqui Growth Index has returned 35.9% for the year ending August 31st, 2020. The MSCI All Country World Index Value Index has returned negative 0.8%, a 36 percentage points difference. Now, that big a gap in one year has a huge influence on even the five-year annualized return, where the MSCI All-Country World Index Growth Index has returned 15.8% annualized, and value has returned 5.6% annualized. 10 percentage points difference. Growth has outperformed on a 10-year basis by over six percentage points. The question is, how much do we pay for that growth? The forward price-to-earnings ratio So the price for that index based on earnings expectations over the next year is 30.4. The value index price to forward earnings is 14.5. It's half as expensive. The dividend yield for the value index is 3.2% versus 0.9% for the growth index. And the overall acqui forward PE is 20.2 with a dividend yield of 2%. If you've been overweight value, do you continue to do that? That's one of the decisions we have to make as investors. Then there's a question of, 
additional diversification? What about some income strategies? Do we have an allocation to equity real estate investment trust? There's a new guide on money for the rest of us on that topic. What about preferred stock? What about mortgage REITs, which is a different type of real estate investment trust that I'm in the process of writing a new guide on and will release this month? Convertible bonds is another asset class. Now, I talked about some of these asset classes back in episode 309 on financial repression. What about more speculative assets? Speculations, which are opportunities where there's some disagreement whether the return will be positive or negative. Gold, commodity futures, cryptocurrencies. I know right now investment committees that oversee endowments are discussing those type of investments also. Should they allocate more to gold? And then we have to decide how much in public investments. Many investors, including me, have private investments, perhaps some rental real estate, some land, direct lending opportunities, other alternative investments in private capital, venture capital, buyout funds. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. It's been interesting to watch the largest pension plan in the world, CalPERS, the California Public Employees Retirement System, 
a $400 billion plan. They have a board. They have committee meetings. Their chief investment officer, their former chief investment officer, but this was back in July, recommended using leverage, which is another portfolio decision we have to make. To what leverage do we want? And in their case, they were potentially going to take three to four years to lever up their entire portfolio by 20%. So they would use debt, they would borrow money, and then buy additional assets so that it would potentially increase the earnings power of their portfolio. And that would create allocation targets that were in excess of 100% of their assets. That was in July. It was a discussion this summer. But then the CIO, Yu Meng, abruptly resigned. There was some potential issues regarding disclosures uh, on some of his holdings. I don't have an opinion on that. But there was other things. The board was trying to decide whether they should invest more in private equity and private debt. And then Meng had gotten rid of a tail hedging strategy to protect against large equity market losses. They took off that protection in January. And then obviously the market tanked in March and cost the pension fund over a billion dollars. Pension boards are really struggling right now because of the hit to their assets and interest rates have fallen. And so their liabilities are growing. We discussed this in episode 269 on the public pension crisis. One of the decisions we have to make as portfolio managers is whether we want to use some type of hedging strategy in our portfolio. And I recently released a video to Plus members on portfolio hedging and volatility investing. We also have to decide how much should be in taxable versus tax-deferred vehicles. And that depends on when we might retire. Because if you retire early, you want to have a sufficient taxable portfolio because you can't draw on your individual retirement account. If you have a defined contribution plan through your work, there's perhaps only certain options available. So you have to figure out, well, how do I manage my taxable portfolio so it complements what's in my tax-deferred vehicle? This particular member was looking at annuities, and he had some specific questions on that that I'll follow up in a plus episode. But we discussed immediate annuities, income annuities, back in episode 279. We have to decide about rebalancing. When? Do we use a calendar-based approach or a threshold approach if our assets fall below some level? And then do we make adjustments based on investment conditions? To some extent, rebalancing is sort of like that. There's a study by Ned Davis Research, and I've mentioned it before, called The Anatomy of Stock Index Declines. And it points out, this is from January 1928 through September 4th, 2020, there have been 316 times that the S&P 500 has fallen by 5% or more. It happens about three and a half times a year with an average decline of 10.8%. It's very difficult to forecast 5% declines. Only 31% of the time does a 5% or more decline progress to a 10% or more decline. So we ride out 5% declines because they're hard to predict And most of the time, they don't get worse than that. We generally also write out 10% or more declines. It happens about once per year. There have been 99 of those since 1928. 45% of the time, a 10% decline moves to 15% or more. So less than half the time. And so, again, that's very difficult to make adjustments. 
Severe corrections of 15% or more happen about every two years, with an average decline of 28%. And 58% of the time, once the market has fallen 15%, it goes on to fall more than 20%. Making adjustments to your stock allocation based on investment conditions when market internals trend is deteriorating, on average, you would benefit from reducing risk when the market has reached that 15% decline. Now, that's just one decision. There's other factors to consider, such as, is the risk of a recession increasing? 10 of the 12 worst bear markets in U.S. history have been during a recession, with an average decline of around 45%. As an investment advisor and now as an educator, I am very in tune to what's going on with economic trends. Is the risk of a recession increasing? And are trends deteriorating in terms of markets selling off? We also look at valuations. In March, as the pandemic took hold, the uncertainty was incredible. The signal suggested a recession was coming, and it did. We reduced risk. I sold stocks in my portfolio. I reduced credit risk, and I felt very good about it. And the fact that the market has rebounded so quickly doesn't bother me because I made the best decision we could under the circumstances, using the weight of evidence. This member should not feel bad about his decision. It was one decision. Now, maybe he wants to adjust how he does it going forward. But we can feel bad about a lot of decisions, and we shouldn't. There's a portfolio manager, Tom Marsico, that we invested with back at my old firm. This was in the mid-90s. He was with the Janus organization. Marsico ran some separately managed growth accounts for our clients, but he also ran the Janus 20 fund. He grew that fund from $7 million to $5.3 billion over a period of nine years. He had the best track record of anyone at Janus. Janus was set up in a way that it wasn't a team approach. I mean, they had team researchers, but each portfolio manager got to make their own decisions. He's a very, very good stock picker. He left in 1997 and he started Marsico Capital Management. Hadn't thought about him in years until today. And I thought, I wonder how Tom Marsico is performing in this environment. This is his ideal investing environment. He's done incredibly well. If you look at the Marsico Growth Fund, MGRIX, he has always used a concentrated style, has 34 stocks, it's up 39% year-to-date, 49% over the past year, and 16.2% over the past decade. If we really wanted to have made money, we should have just put all our money in the Marsico Growth Fund and borrowed money and invested in it. But we didn't. We shouldn't feel bad about that either. There's always something we can feel regret about. But given these myriad decisions we have to make as investors, doing our best with an inability to accurately predict the future, we have to take a deep breath and realize that some things are going to do better than we expected, and some things are going to do worse than expected. If we hire an investment advisor, which we can, they have to make all these same decisions, and they're not going to be any better than you at doing them. You might outsource it and have them do it, but don't hire an advisor thinking that they're going to make better decisions than you can. Because you can make very good decisions. 
But we have to realize there's so many options that we have to make good enough decisions and simplify as much as possible. In my book, I give the example of Andrew Lowe, who mentions he owns 10 shirts, 5 jackets, 20 ties, 4 belts, 10 pairs of socks, 4 pairs of shoes. He can create 2 million unique outfits. And if he tried to optimize that, it would take him 23 days to do that. That's what investing is like. There are so many options that cannot be optimized. There is no right portfolio. There are good enough portfolios. And we do our best. And we could simplify and get close to buy and hold. Let's say an investor decides, I'm going to put 60% in stocks. I'm going to buy the Vanguard Total World Stock Market ETF. I'm going to buy 40% of the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF. And I will rebalance once a year, every January 1st. I'm not going to worry about factor bets. I'm not going to try to buy individual stocks. I'm not going to worry about large, small, and mid. Whatever that stock ETF is, that's what I own. That is a simple way to do that. It's a valid way to invest. Not everybody wants to do that. But we can't beat ourselves up when things don't go as we expected because that's just the nature of investing. In conclusion, I'm reading a book titled Wabi Sabi by Beth Kempton. And she was talking about failure and that we need to reframe failure. And she says, in order to reframe failure, we first have to reframe success. When we set ourselves up with a singular goal and hang our personal worth on whether or not we achieve it, even if many of the contributing factors are beyond our control, the fall can be painful. If we fall short of our performance target or things don't work out, there are so many factors that contributed to that that are beyond our control. We can't stake our investment personal worth based on what happens in the market because we're going to be disappointed if we do that. Instead, she writes, if we change our view of success to one about how we want to feel and how we want to experience life, everything changes with that. I mention a lot that we're on an investment journey. We're learning. We're growing. We're doing our best. We're enjoying the ride, experiencing it, but not holding ourselves up to such a high standard that we feel good or bad whether a particular investment did as well as we thought or did worse than we thought. This member moved 10% or so of his portfolio out of stocks in the face of the deepest recession, most catastrophic pandemic in decades. And he's down a couple percent year to date. It's okay. He's still retired. Life is good. He's going to do perfectly fine, no matter how he chooses to invest. Now, my promise to you is I will do all I can to help you become a better investor, help you navigate these uncertain markets so that you feel more confident about your investing and have peace of mind. I do that on the free podcast. I do that on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. That is episode 313. You can get show notes Links to articles I referenced at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly email. It's called The Insider's Guide, where I share the links to that week's episode, write a little bit about the episode, and share an essay on money, investing, and the economy. You can sign up for that. It's free at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is Simply General Education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.